Welcome to Scotland on Shrooms. This podcast is dedicated to exploring Scotland's relationship with all things fungi and our place in the fungal revolution that's happening worldwide right now. I'm Lynn, your host, and I am not an expert, but probably just like you, I love fungi in all of their forms. And while I'm not the expert, I am really looking forward to meeting those who are. Scotland's mycologists, artists, business folk and storytellers who dedicate their lives and their creative practices to improving ours through the power of mushrooms and fungi. Let's explore Scotland on Shrooms. Sean Parkinson is an artist, composer and performer based in his and my hometown of Dundee. He trained as a sculptor at Sertral St. Martin's College and the Slade School of Art. He was an Amanda Burton Scholar at the University of Leeds Centre for Audiovisual Experimentation, where he recently completed his PhD exploring sound and listening in relation to smell, particularly bad smells. Now, Sean, I first saw you when you delivered a Pecha Kucha talk on that very topic. I remember being totally enthralled when at the end you performed the sound of what a stinkhorn mushroom might sound like. And I remember seeing and hearing and experiencing you perform and thinking, oh my days, I need to speak to this person because he gets it. He understands the weirdness and wonder of mushrooms. And I saw you and identified you as a as a fellow mushroom person. So can I ask, first off, when did you first realise that you are a mushroom person and what does that mean to you? Thanks for, yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, I'm delighted to speak to anyone else who's enthusiastic about <laughs> mushrooms like me and for saying that you were enthralled by that. The sound that I actually um, made of the stinkhorn wasn't quite accurate, but we can speak about that later. It was more of a kind of a fart gag. But, uh, and, and also... We'll touch upon this later, but the the weird world of mushrooms, I suppose the weirdness we found each other, you know, I've kind of looked for the weird in, in mushrooms more over the last kind of five, six years. But the way I was first exposed to mushrooms or became interested in them was probably when I was growing up visiting the land of my mother, uh, which is North Wales, and in the, the fields opposite uh, their home, they would go out and collect field mushrooms. I, I don't really know if anyone knew what they were doing. And you hear mm -hmm. terrible stories and have ha heard you know, fairly recent terrible stories of people misidentifying mushrooms. But that's what they did. And I loved the idea that the, these quite fleshy, substantial things were just readily available. Maybe it was just a, a family thing. We had a, a similar relationship with winkles, sea snails, which my dad used to collect as well Brilliant. and um maybe winkles are a bit more uh what do you call it they, they they split people more than mushrooms for being kind of repugnant for some but delicious for others but it was it was those kind of formative experiences of seeing these boxes full of of mushrooms coming back from the fields that we would eat for breakfast and then i was always i always wanted to know more i suppose I wanted to know more about identifying mushrooms. And when I lived in London, I um, took part in a course. It was just a weekend course, which is about identifying mushrooms. And we visited Hampstead Heath and the 
the instruction that we were given, this ragtag group of people, which included my sister, was just to collect everything and to bring it back, we laid out on the table and using different identification manuals, we learned to, to, to kind of you know, identify what they were. Most things ended up in the bin or back out in the forest. But there were some, there was a few really extraordinary finds, which some of which I, I'm not sure if I can speak about here, but it was just incredible. The, the guy who led it was a, a mycologist called Andy Overall, and his sign off on his email was a fun guy to be with. And he had printed on his t shirt. It was, it was just amazing. I really was drawn to him. On his t shirt, he had a, a, a spore print that he'd made into a, a screen print onto this black T-shirt of a, a horse mushroom. So it looked like this massive iris, you know, <sighs> glowing out from his chest. So I really enjoyed that. And when we moved to the Isle of Mull, I suppose we just kept on with that practice of collecting everything, using different identification manuals, recording what we found, and then and then mostly binning it, you know, letting it go back into the soil mm-hmm. um, before we grew in confidence to know what we were doing. To, this is, and when I say we, I mean my, my partner and our three children. It was two at the time. And that's just something we've done as a family. And, and that's kind of, you know, slowly, and I don't know if you found this, but your repertoire just grows and grows. So, yeah, so, I mean, I just kind of feel, and I think I probably will ever be, a perennial novice, an amateur, yeah. which I'm happy with. Um, because I, th- I think there's also something exciting you can do in that space of amateurism, which is also the space of being an artist, I think. Absolutely. That's such a wonderful take on it as well. Um, and your origin story of that that family connection and particularly field and horse mushrooms, just really the kind of simplest, I think, the gateway mushrooms, where people yeah, mostly mushrooms. get into it. <laughs> yeah, they totally are. Um, my, my story is actually quite similar. My dad used to take me out to to look for field mushrooms. We'd gather them up and we'd sell them to the local kind of fancy country hotel. So I had this really interesting experience as a kid of like going out and my dad showing me the pinkish gills of the the field mushroom and telling me how to identify them, putting them in boxes. And then off we drive to, to the hotel and chap on the back door of the kitchen and say, look, we've got this. Do you want do you want it? And then, you know, I'd get a wee bit extra pocket money. Um, and That's my dad great. also... It was really cool. It was early kind of entrepreneurialism plus yeah. Yeah, mushroom foraging and all that cool stuff. But my dad also, interestingly, he, I think winkles and whelks are the same thing. I don't know if it's the same word for the same, same creature. No, they're not. My, they're, dif- they're different. Are no. they? Ah, cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, One is so disgusting. One is uh, outright disgusting. Like the whelks are, are the most, yeah, the most horrible creatures and violent, you know, like, like <laughs> aliens. They, they drill into other mollusks and devour them from inside they empty the the contents of their stomach into them like and then slurp them up like soup i had no idea that is amazing my mum thinks they're delicious (laughs) yeah i couldn't quite get into i always kind of felt like i should do but i think you know i think maybe just as a connection to my my late father but i had to once um soap and comb my tongue after eating one because it was so i found it so repulsive but Oh, Maybe it's just the scale of it. Maybe it's the scale of it. Yeah, that's fair. Oh my days! Yeah, I had no idea, but that's. Uh, thank you so much for that. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful image as well. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> so it's yeah, just interesting that the foraging thing is the the bit that starts, and all of a sudden there's a spark and interest about cataloging and finding out more and kind of devouring that knowledge and going out with you and your family actually last year. Um, thank you so much for that. We had a wee visit to Templeton Woods in Dundee, and I just remember your gorgeous trug and beautiful knife, and the way that your children are so comfortable in that space, going about picking, looking, being curious and asking questions and identifying. Um, it was a really beautiful way to spend some time. So thank you. It was a really nice yeah, way Yeah, likewise. To, thank you. Yeah, it's great. One of my key memories from that was we were walking together down the side of one of the paths and you picked a Miller mushroom and handed it to me and said, give it a, give it a smell. And I did. And I smelled it and I thought, Mm, hang on, wait a moment. And then you had the most beautiful word for it. You said, it smells quite spermatic, doesn't it? And I was like, well, I'm in polite company, so I didn't really want to say, but yes. And I didn't have the <laughs> the nicer word for it, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I just love that your connection with fungi is really, it's really essential. It's not just looking and identifying. It's a, it's a really, um, it feels like a really primal relationship because you use all of your senses to, to do that. And I just wanted to ask you particularly about your relationship with the stinkhorn mushroom. And if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit more about that. So we're, we're getting filthy now, really, yes. aren't we? When we're talking about the Miller and it being spermatic. I think spermatic was a word that was used by the late Roger Phillips in his book, mm. Mushrooms. And it was a book that I know very, very well, probably a lot of other mushroomers do too. And I, for some reason, I can't remember why, but I went through it. I think I think to answer that first point about it being a, a sensory experience, I think it always has been probably for most botanists and natural historians that have engaged with the world of, of fungi. Fungi, don't like that, that pronunciation, but that pronunciation, but, but um, I think that when you... Maybe the sense of smell is is much harder to communicate because language is 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 very poor in communicating the um, the sense of smell. But in Roger Phillips's book, I think he mentioned seventy six different descriptions of scent. One of them being spermatic, um, and I just really liked the precision of that. And when you go out with with other mushroom hunters, um, who we bumped into that day, didn't we? The, yeah. the Tayside and Fife Fungal Group, or TAFG, as their yeah. acronym is. Um, you know, like it, it's about looking really closely at these mushrooms and, and smelling them because the smell can sometimes distinguish them from something that looks identical. So I really like those those tools in order to you know distinguish between different species. This the stinkhorn in particular, I just I think I I love it because it's so puerile and brazen and the more i've i've researched it and looked at it the more i realize that there are other figures in history who felt the same as me so the stinkhorn was the subject of the first ever mycological monograph so the first publication about a single species of mushroom which was published in 1564 by a dutch botanist and physician called hadrianus junius and i realized that this this pamphlet had never been translated before, n- never directly from English, uh, sorry, from Neo-Latin, which was the language of the, the you know, the educated, of the learned. 
mm. people in that time, I suppose those who engaged in kind of academic interests. So it was written in Neo-Latin, and it includes a description of uh, this mushroom, which uh, Junius calls the phallus, um, because, come on, it looks yep. like a, a phallus. Um, and it also includes a, a drawing by a, another Dutch artist called Martin Hemskirk that separates this mushroom out into bits. And it describes the anatomy of it in terms of it looking like a penis, but also um, like a vulva. So this mm-hmm. thing kind of mixes up the sex organs, which I really liked. Um, one of the things it doesn't do too well is describe its scent, but but smell would have been much more pervasive then, you know, in the 16th century in Europe. It would have been much more disgusting, in, in well, you know, to, to our noses now. But it also ends in this kind of lyrical poem that had never been translated before. So I, I just kind of wanted to try and under, find out a little bit more about how people throughout history have described and come across this, this phallic mushroom. And the names in lots of different languages, apart from its kind of Latin names, which is all very kind of penis heavy, really just the Latin names and the common names almost exclusively talk about it looking like a penis, looking like an erect penis. There are a few examples where it talks about its smell. And the thing is about the stinkhorn, again, which I like because although it's common, it is elusive as well, is that you smell it before you see it. Mm-hmm. It's really, really powerful. Apparently, uh, a female dog on heat can smell it from several kilometers away. It attracts different species of, of necrophagus and coprophagus, which means kind of shit-loving and, and corpse-loving flies from a great distance, which come in and feed off its slime, which stinks of dung and, and carrion, rotting flesh. Mm-hmm. And they think that they're going to find this really rich protein meal there but actually it's just quite sweet it also has a laxative effect on these flies so it makes them defecate nearby which means mm-hmm. that it, it's growing in similarly rich soil these stink horns so i just suppose there's so much about it there's a vocabulary around it that's really quite abject and disgusting which i really like mm-hmm. um you know it's, it's slimy it grows from an egg which is colloquially called a witch's egg which also looks like a scrotum um, it pierces it, it pierces it, and I, you know, almost in real time, you can see this thing becoming erect. Like I've collected some with the children before, taken them back in the car to photograph at home, and by the time you get home, it's it's sprouted, it's become erect. It's, wow. it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And even when photographing it in the house, the smell, which is initially not that bad, becomes really quite powerful and 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 just revolting. I mean, okay. it's it's it lives up to its name, stinkhorn, and it you know even in the middle of uh, autumn can tease out flies from behind the walls of your home to attract it. So yeah, it's there's just so much about it that that crosses that appeals to to different interests. One of kind of history, the one of the act of kind of looking closely at, at the natural world, um, but also the potential for art making as well. Mm-hmm. Just on that point of of how it attracts flies, what it looks like, how it functions, it smells like death, it looks like a very life-giving thing, it mixes the sex organs, it's a really complicated thing, but I think at at the heart of a little bit of that conversation is the like the fungal function of life and death. 
Like that's it it wears that really proudly and like you said earlier, brazenly in a vulgar yeah. way. It's just it's a really interesting thing to look at. So you said then it's um it's a some a gateway into art making. Can you tell us a little bit more about your art and and what you've explored in that space? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I trained as a sculptor, so um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in in the form of mushrooms anyway. And I suppose their when I talked about earlier about the kind of their solidness, their robustness, and how they can emerge quickly, um, and how they're also articulated. You can kind of tease bits of mushrooms apart, and they're obviously they're the the fruit of the of the larger plant in the commas, the mycelium that grows often underground. Um, so there is a kind of material aspect that I'm really interested in in them, um, both in the kind of dryness, their sliminess, their brittleness. The stinkhorn, in particular, I was interested in. So, so I, I, as I was saying, like I trained as a sculptor, but over the last few years specifically the last five years I've been making more work as a, as a composer working and writing for uh, both myself and other soloists and ensemble uh, ensembles to perform my works and I'm interested in how stink the phenomenon of stink may be used as a compositional tool and there is something that that is in the stink horn the name of the stink horn itself that speaks to that so stink horn as I'm, I'm a potentially magical instrument that can make a foul smell, you know, like it's, it's probably a brass instrument, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's marked by this sound of humming flies that are attracted to it. So this humming, which also means a, a, a bad or an unpleasant pervasive smell. Yes, yeah. There's all these little connections which I really enjoy. So a lot of my work over the last few years has been trying to think about a type of music that may subscribe to some of this criteria that's pervasive, that's that's kind of maybe inarticulate, so like humming or moaning, mm-hmm. ringing or whooshing, that is potentially pleasant and unpleasant at the same time. And there is something about stink, I must say. So I've been looking at, at this word stink, what it means to us, what it does to us humans rather than just to other, to, to other non-humans, which obviously find it compelling. Mm-hmm. You know the stink of the stink horn is 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 awful. I mean, it truly is something you feel in your stomach. Yeah. Um, but when you spend, especially when you kind of smell it indoors, um, which is not designed for. But when you smell it outside, there is something kind of teasing about it, right? In the same way that some stinks can be appealing, right? Yeah. There's there's certain smells of food, of sex, of like you know, gasoline or whatever that can, can be nostalgic. Um, or, you know, if you think about the where we live uh, in in Dundee and the smell of, of fertiliser that's, that's put on the, the farmland can sometimes mark a, a particular season. So, 100%, yeah. So our cultural associations with certain stinks, I was kind of interested in kind of peeling that back a little bit. But I suppose just going back to that, all of those things that, that that surround literally and figuratively around this this phallus, right? Um, I find is is a gift to an artist who who has a kind of multi sensory approach to the world. So mm-hmm. there's been a few projects I've done over the last few years that have used that kind of traced the uh, uh, 
I tried to understand the, the key of the humming of these different species of fly, flies that, that, are, that surround it, what, what key they actually hum in, what that kind of sounds like when you put it into musical composition, how the textures and the feeling um, of, of the mushroom uh, can be conveyed to like a fashion designer. So I worked with um, the women's wear designer, uh, Matty Bovan, in 2020 for an exhibition. Wow. at Somerset House, created this gorgeous mushroom dress for me, which to perform in. It also lends itself to a certain kind of instrumentation, like, you know, a theremin, like something that's played without touching, that's wafting your hands around a, a metal antenna. And, and yet yeah, I've also worked with other kind of perfume designers to try and understand uh, how the actual scent of the stinkhorn can be conveyed into something that's that's more appealing that, that can last can have a duration i suppose um and that doesn't make you want to vomit <laughs> <laughs> a yeah. key a key aspect of a perfume <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah absolutely yeah that's incredible just to hear you talk about the the sensory richness with which you approach not only your work but your understanding of a singular fungus is incredibly interesting. And just to track back to the, um, some stinks can be attractive. Having grown up in the countryside, silage is one of my favorites. And as we, my wee boy, he's five. And as we drive around and go for reruns in the country and go for walks, we've had that conversation of, oh, that's smelly, but... And it's that really interesting connection with that sense of like, that's initially repugnant, but I don't hate it. And it's wonderful that you've managed to create work around that. So your PhD, um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how the stinkhorn features uh, throughout? Well, it kind of, um, it features really prominently. It's <laughs> it's, it's kind of central, central to it. So as I say, it's trying to argue how, sound and, and listening may be informed, not only influenced, but informed by uh, experiences of, of bad smells. So I try to define what a stink is. You know, and I, I speak about lots of different stinks in, in history and how stinks can change. Um, and there's been a, a kind of renewed interest in this where the sense of smell has not really received that much attention over the last couple of decades. But particularly around the last you know, five years or so, it has. And that's also, for me, ironic in that my do, doing my PhD was also um, during the period of lockdown, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the COVID pandemic, the symptom, one of the symptoms of which is, is the, the lack of taste or smell. And even how we're communicating now, Lynn, over you know over um, a, a streaming platform, yeah. um, it's favouring sight and sound over the other senses. Mm -hmm. I feel definitely my own experiences, my social experiences, have, have been left a little bit bereft as a result of that. I like much more real life experiences, but um, I think that that was a particular. I don't know, like the, the COVID, the, the, the lockdown, homeschooling, um, the pressures on us and that distance that we felt physically and, and, and metaphorically between other people and the natural world um, helped accelerate some of these ideas, I think. So I suppose trying to find something that was 
and ex- experiences that are kind of intimate, that are airborne, specifically airborne, things that rattle the air, as mm-hmm. smell and sound both do. I wanted to get closer to that. And then I suppose I also should say that part of the PhD and part of what happened over the last few years is that I experienced on a train a seizure that was triggered by, I think, listening to a piece of music. Oh, and it was undiagnosed for a year. I was having it kind of, I was having these seizures, um, what I now know were seizures, but at the time were just kind of funny feelings, episodes or funny turns. Okay. Um, in which I was conscious, but it kind of reached this crescendo when I started to experience phantom smells. So really disgusting, horrible smell sensations that were also marked by uh, hearing, um, humming and whooshing and ringing noises. Right. And, and I, I experienced uh, two of these in quick succession and finally thought, actually, I need to get this checked out. And, and over the phone, I could only have a consultation over the phone then. Somebody said, yeah, you've got temporal lobe epilepsy. You'll be on this medication starting tomorrow. You'll be on it for the rest of your life. Wow. But what I found intriguing and also the danger of being an artist, I think, is that you instrumentalize this information very quickly. So I was like, right. So I looked at the history of epilepsy, tried to find other examples of people who've described auditory auras, auditory and, and olfactory auras. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they are seizures in themselves, but experiences of, of smells and sounds that are not physically present, but are real to the person experiencing them. Mm-hmm. So I also wanted to use that as as something as a tool to to think about how we perceive the world um, and how it could be used as a way of making art. So I composed a piece of music called Phantosmia, which is is that that experience of of an olfactory hallucination, which which often forewarns kind of larger um, grand mal seizures. Um, so I worked with a, a an ensemble in uh, Aberdeen called the Red Note Ensemble. Who performed a piece of work which really kind of just marked out the, the stages of that that experience of a phantom stink, you know? So it's it's just weird, and I, I mean that in a in a literal sense. Weird means to turn, so a funny turn, and uh, is is a kind of it's a weird weird, you know? Yeah. I just there was something I felt terrified by, and I think only really now. I'm, f- I'm figuring out what that actually means. But, you know, that's that's kind of four or five years that have been marked by literally internalising these sensory experiences, actually them being in my brain, caused mm-hmm. by a, a dysfunction in my brain, but also an imagined space about, well, what does this mean? What is the stink that emanates from this mushroom? What is it actually mimicking? What is it synthesising? How, how, how do these organisms know, in inverted commas, what to recreate, and and how far does that stretch back in in, in kind of our natural history? So the smell that that people experience, you know, the recorded episodes of that, sorry, this is in in, in, um, experiences of of epilepsy that are marked by phantosmia. Mm -hmm. They're they're reported in very similar ways. It's a stink. It's It's something foul. It's you'll often hear like burned toast, which is actually the smell of acrylamide, that cancerous thing that, that you have when you have charred food, but also kind of rotting flesh. Right. And, and a lot of that language is, is similarly attributed to the stink horn. So 
I don't know. I think that what I've found is that the more the more I've interrogated this as a subject, sound and smell, via the stinkhorn, the more I've realised, or the more I kind of have come to just accept that there's all of these impossible but very kind of real connections between other organisms and ourselves and how the outside world permeates our senses, plural. Um, and mushrooms are just a really good metaphor for thinking about these things, I think. And, and that's why we've also seen in the same period the proliferation of writing about smell in, in, in cultural history. Mushrooms has been, has been something else, you know, yeah. that we've seen much more interest in. That's why we're speaking now, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. There's a, there's a cultural renaissance around mushrooms and just what you, you said there around what they represent, how we can explore different avenues of what it means to be a person or what it means to be an organism. They're giving us a, they reflect back to us what that is, whether that's in terms of connection or whether there's... Um, something I'm quite interested in is biomimicry in terms of systems. So mushrooms allow us to look and see, well, what does a mycelial collaboration system look like? What does a mycelial um, approach to business look like, a mycelial approach to economics? There's, they are existence in microcosm. And I think it's such a wonderful thing that you have, you've taken that very sensual and sensory aspect of them and integrated that not only into your person and your thinking about your your own challenges and your health, but as an artist, what else do you do but assimilate that into your work and allow other people to explore through that? Um, so it's a really exciting opportunity to be able to to hear you talk about your own experiences and how you relate them back to to the fungus. It's wonderful, Sean. Thank you for sharing that as well. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. I mean, it is it is exciting, and, and I was kind of gently warned off it by by some individuals but I kind of feel that the answer to that is that that's what that's what artists do and have, and have always done not in a heroic sense but you kind of draw from these very kind of private experiences and try to to share it to see if it makes sense for for others I suppose and just um, just in response to that that um what you described as as trying to kind of uh, find inspiration by these ecosystems and biomimicry, mm. you know, I find similarly that that's something that was happening in the stinkhorn and its symbiotic relationship, um, insects, um, and how it actually speaks to other organisms that are, are without, you know, outside of its kingdom. So yeah. how it kind of often, they often emerge outside badger sets. And also that kind of stink being something, you know, like the, the stink of the stinkhorn and the stink of the, the phantom smell being what could be described as a as an atavism a throwback from when we were more simple organisms you know something that's just you know built into us and i think there's something that speaks about childhood in that as well like the thrill and the excitement that we have of the abject and the, and, and the cruel and the naughty mm-hmm. kids are really kind of good company in that regard i think they, they they laugh in the right places and that's also how they make sense of those those weird encounters and you know we, we, can, we can go further and further into into this as you wish. but yeah no I, I kind of I, that that's also something I enjoy is I don't I'm not sure how much our, our children enjoy but it's an important part to share that world with them I think so it's kind of interesting that both you and I and others that I've spoken to their love of fungi and the natural world more broadly often comes through somebody senior who's shared that with them, like a parent or a grandparent 
there's a special kind of knowledge there that I, I feel that we have an obligation to pass down. Absolutely. Um, and I just wanted, you kind of sparked something about an earlier point that you made around, you know, the laugh in the right places, the stink horn looking like it does, and the associations that we have with that. And I just love that that was the the first the first one to be sort of studied in isolation in any visual way. Um, I wonder if more women were given the, the opportunity to, to be botanists at that time, would it have been? Would there be something else? Was it the fact it was, you know, a kind of a, a male who went in to say, oh, actually, I recognise this and this is a bit of a laugh, so I'm going to do it. Or, um, you know, how did those, for a, a serious scientific study, to happen around something that looks so much like a penis is yeah. for me just an excellent wee illustration of the human condition yeah. <laughs> and our relationship yeah. I mean, I, with that type of stuff. I mean, it's definitely uh, the history of kind of um, mycology within science. Uh, I, I think, well, you know, and botany more broadly, it, it, it was it, it was men that was that was they were typically writing about it. So it does mm -hmm. definitely. The stinkhorn has a kind of phallocentric history and it's it's but i think that where we th where we imagine there to be this kind of very clear concise and um excuse the pun but penetrating science you know Love scientific <laughs> um, you know the precision of that and especially kind of the binomial system there's jokes within that as well you know like it's it is a bunch of guys kind of laughing tongue-in-cheek you know all all these names about you know, Priapus and, you know, Mutinus caninus, the dog stinkhorn. It looks like a, a, a dog's penis, you know. Um, references to to demigods in, in Greek and, and Roman Satyrs, history. Satyrs, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's all it's all just kind of people finaring all the time. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I kind of think that sometimes a spade is a spade, a, a stinkhorn is a stinkhorn. It looks like a cock and balls. You know, there's there's no way of getting, <laughs> getting around it. You know, um, but I think maybe there are other elements definitely where a different perspective on it could could be less um, puerile. <laughs> but then again, like I'm quite happy. I'm quite happy with, with with some of the. It's quite real. It's quite a real human reaction to it. I suppose everyone laughs when they see it. Uh, they absolutely do, and it's it's. For that reason, I think it is beautiful and an excellent yeah. thing. Um, you wrote an article on the stinkhorn in the Mushroom magazine, um, which I had a wee read of last night, and it's beautiful. The vocabulary that you use around it is just astounding. And I just wanted to ask, aside from the Mushroom, which is an excellent publication, you know, what would you what would you recommend that people pick up and read and find out more about as we all sort of learn a bit more about stinkhorns and not just that, but but fungi in general. Gosh, so um, I suppose there's a few there's points at which there's little moments where I get slightly cross, and I think it's a it's a it's an ego thing where I kind of feel like other people are doing it before me and are are more intelligent, have more are better credentials, and are, are are more articulate than I. And I think a good example of that is Marilyn Sheldrake, whose book came out a few years ago, yeah. and it is very kind of readable. And also explains the kind of broader the interconnectedness of of fungi and and um, the wider world. Anna Singh, uh, who wrote about the mushroom at the end of the world, I took as a really good example of how uh, and it, it, she writes about uh, the matsutake mushroom as uh, again as a metaphor for thinking about um, an anthropological study about how 
capitalism emerges from well, it, it, it says in the, the, the subtitle, cap from capitalist ru ruins. So this is a, a mushroom that grows out of sites where there's been destruction or, you know, where where buildings have been torn down. And it's that particular kind of soil that, that these mushrooms like to grow on or from sites of deforestation. She's written a couple of articles. She's extraordinary and touches upon some of the big hitters who have looked at metaphors of, of mushrooms and, and art, such as John Cage. John Cage's estate brought out a, a book uh, a couple of years ago with illustrations by somebody whose name escapes me for the moment. It's, I think it's called A Mycological Foray, and it features some drawings and poems by the composer John Cage and his interests in, in, in mushrooms. And he, I, I always found it kind of striking that Cage didn't really ever talk much about the stinkhorn um, or reference the stinkhorn in any of his writing you know especially given the kind of pun of its title as i said before like the the, the potential of a kind of mythical instrument the stinkhorn mm. but there's there's been a few other publications recently i can't remember the, the name of the other one but there's been another publication that i saw recently about the matsutake mushroom um, but there's other folks such as elio schechter and nicholas money who write really well about mushrooms and more than just um, scientists, uh, they have a, a capacity for nature writing, which puts you in the place of, mm -hmm. of mushrooms, which I really like. There was a book published, I think, two years ago about, about truffle hunting with dogs, which again is extraordinary, which, which explores some of the more capitalist end of, of mushroom foraging and uh, selling the gastronomic kind of properties of, of black and, and white truffles throughout Europe and attempts to cultivate truffles, which are notoriously difficult in other parts of the world, like North America and New Zealand and some places in South England as well. I think I've got some of them here. It's called Truffle Hound. It's by Rowan Jacobson in the Company of Mushrooms by um, Elio Schechter. There was a, a writer called E.C. Large, who was an author who wrote The Advance of the Fungi, but who's also president of the British Mycology um, Society. And he gave this great address sometime in the early 20th century that, that, that said that we need names of mushrooms that children can speak. And he names the stinkhorn and the puffball as, <laughs> as, as two examples. So E.C. Large is a, is a good person to kind of look at. His writing is, is, is brilliant anyway. And there is a, there's a now out-of-print book by W.P.K. Finlay called Fungi, Folklore and Fact. I think Ooh, that sounds it's good. A, it's an alliterative, alliterative okay. title. It's out-of-print, but if you can find it, and it was actually Roger Phillips who gave me my copy because it reprints um, uh, an example of uh, an illustration of the stinkhorn. I can't remember who it was by, but it was printed upside down. Uh, so it looks uh, decidedly less phallic. I don't know <laughs> if it is. But yeah, so, so there's more coming out. But um, I suppose the trick is to how, how to, to write about mushrooms for a, a, a a non-specialist audience, which is, a, I think, that Sheldrake managed to kind of pull off, and I think Jacobson did as, did as well. They're just, it's, it's good nature writing, I think. Yeah. But 
with my kind of academic interests, I'm interested, I'm always excited about where people use mushrooms as metaphors for, for describing other aspects of, of human life. And, you know, one of the things I was writing about my PhD and has only just been uh, made into uh, a TV series is The Last of Us, the, yeah. the, the video game that's now been made into a, a TV series, which kind of references gets a lot lot of things wrong but it takes artistic license about the cordyceps um yeah. zombie fungus but yeah you know it's that's what's been a joy is, is trying to find these little moments within poetry music art literature that that speaks about mushroom and mushrooms as metaphor whether that's patricia highsmith or emily dickinson uh john cage as i've said you know we're, we're all kind of mining the same area we're all foraging for the same stuff Mm-hmm. you know so yeah it's a testament to not only how broad the topic is that you can just say there's this author and this is their this is their take and um you know we go from exploring a metaphorical uh, view of mushrooms and capitalism to actually very practical discussions around well here's the gastronomic uh, interests yeah. around yeah. black and white truffles um and your breadth of knowledge and interest and your clear love amateur in that you know in the truest sense of being someone who loves um which i think we we need to reclaim certainly and i think uh fungi enthusiasts certainly do that but yeah you clearly know your stuff and it's just an absolute joy to to have spoken with you today and to have listened to you and your experiences and how you experience um that particular fungus which is your sort of main thing i suppose in your phd can I just ask, how do we access your work? You're an artist, so how do we find out more? I can provide links um, with the podcast, which I'll do, but you know, where can people hear more about you and what you do? Yeah, well, thanks. Um, I suppose, first of all, is is my website, seanparkinson.com, and also that gives you links to my Instagram, which is at seanparkinson, and my SoundCloud page. But I suppose the last few years, I've really been putting in that that work, um, that, that investigation, that research and the making. And hopefully this year, there's going to be an emergence of a bunch of stuff. So um, I'm recording an album this year up in the Highlands with a bunch of, of very talented musicians that, that, will, that will put down onto record um, for the first time some of this work that I've been I've been working on over the last couple of years. So that'll hopefully come out at the end of the year. It's tentatively titled Stink Music. Um, Brilliant. Um, yeah, so that would be good. And then at the same time, roughly about the same time, I think um, my book will be coming out, um, which is titled Stinkhorn, which will have a very provocative cover, which is what everyone can probably imagine. And... And that, that deals with a lot of elements um, from my research over the last few years, but will be written for a fairly broad, non-specialist audience, which includes lots of images of stinkhorns and other, I suppose, stinking mushrooms and, and stinking cultural artefacts over the last few hundred years. That comes out uh, later this year as well. So they, they're the things to look out for. So that's a, that's a, a bunch of routes but hopefully it'll be all amplified more uh, by the end of 2023. Oh, fantastic. I cannot wait to hear. I can't wait to hear it. I've heard snippets of your your sound work in your sound library. 
but yeah, the, the stink music is, that's really exciting. And I can't wait to get a copy of your book as well. Sean, thank you so much uh, for coming and discussing your particular interest in fungi. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing more from you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Scotland on Shrooms. If you or someone you know would like to be featured on the podcast, please just email me scotlandonshrooms at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you.